Hi, I'm Natalia, and you're listening to Advanced Copy, a podcast for independent thinkers in fashion. Co-founders of Delhi-based No Black No White, Amrit Kumar and Rega Kapadia never set out to start a fashion label. They moved from Canada to India in 2010 to experiment with creativity. Fast forward to today and they're seamlessly bringing together heritage textile skills with contemporary silhouettes resonating with a global community that is as international as it is diverse. In this interview, Amrit and Rega discuss how the country's rich textile heritage instantly caught their attention, why the trade show format didn't work for them as a business, and how they built their team and grew No Black, No White to being a cultural platform and creative studio. Enjoy. Amrit and Rega, thank you for joining us on the Advanced Copy podcast today. Hello, thanks for having us. Hi, happy to be here. Well, thank you so much. And I'm so excited to get started with this conversation and to learn about No Black, No White. So in a classic tradition, we'd like to learn about your personal backgrounds, where you come from and some reflections on your years growing up, what inspired you at the time, were you more creative or maybe more academic? So, Amrit, if you don't mind telling us about yourself first, please. Um, I'm actually born and raised in Toronto, in Canada. I come from, uh, yeah, you know, a Punjabi Sikh family. Raised in a really small family, just raised by a single mom with my brother and sister and grown up in a community that is basically quite heavily populated with like, like it's an immigrant uh, community, like a suburb. So I've kind of grown up with a diverse range of people around me and definitely that's influenced me and just seek background and family. Obviously there is a little bit of, you know, my mother is a little conservative and like, you know, the academics was very important, but um, I definitely did push the creative side in terms of my own style. It's just something that I've always been interested in from a really young age and just, you know, found that was the one way I could really kind of communicate who I was and it was a reflection of who I was. It was a, my one outlet. You know, I did end up going into a business degree in university. I did a, uh, a BA in psychology and then a BCom focused on retail commerce, always wanting to make things, not knowing if that was a possibility because it really wasn't an option growing up in my house. It was like lawyer, dentist, doctor, pharmacist, that kind of vibe. But through my second degree, I did an internship at a vintage boutique here in Toronto, which I then ended up working at for three years. But the owner of the boutique, Keelan Sullivan, was basically kind of my eye-opening and a mentor and really kind of pushed me in making things. She literally just gave me a piece one day and was like, see what you can do with it. And I took it home. I took it for the weekend and, you know, cut it up and wove some fabric through it and brought it back and she just kind of you know was going crazy over it and then gave me another piece and then another piece and I started making more and it actually started selling and a lot of like international buyers coming from like Japan and whatnot started buying these one-off pieces and I was like okay maybe there's something there 
and yeah, that just kind of led to my like curiosity and exploration of wanting to get into fashion. I didn't know to what degree, didn't know what the options were, especially being in a place like Toronto, because Toronto, you know, there it's fashion scene is not, it's quite small. Um, so really didn't know what my options were, but that, you know, eventually led me to India. And how old were you when this internship in Vintage happened? Yeah, it was in between my studies. It was like my early 20s. I went into a career fair where everybody was basically, it was all like corporate heads from like the bigger big box stores. Like I remember walking in and being like, oh my God, this is definitely not what I want to do. But Keelan, the vintage uh, shop owner, she was literally standing there in a one piece snowsuit like sticking out with a sore thumb. And I was just like, who is this person? And literally, I think I was the only one that went to her and we just kind of hit it off and she took me in. And then I, the position eventually uh, evolved into me helping her manage the retail side of the business as well as I, that's the experience I had from school. And I've just been working in retail since I was 15. So I've like worked at the mall since I was 15 years old. I've worked at bookstores I worked at The Gap for two years. I've literally had like so much retail experience. That's quite an amazing story of how that non-academic side of your life was also developed through, you know, these part-time jobs and an internship and then actually to what it is now. And it's also so lovely to see how these mentors come into our lives and guide us, the people who see something in us when maybe we actually don't see it yet. Absolutely, for sure. I feel like if it wasn't for Keelan, I definitely, you know, I don't know where my journey would have gone. I actually applied to fashion school after my first degree. I was on the fifth on the waiting list and I didn't get in. So she was kind of the start of my schooling and like my start of my learning and kind of definitely shared a lot of her knowledge with me. And thank you for explaining that because I think there's so much pressure to get into a you know, quote unquote, good fashion school to open those industry doors. And it's just really great to hear that it's still possible to achieve a successful creative career in another way. And Mriga, how about you? What were your younger years like? So I was, um, I was born in India and I had a childhood in Kuwait and our family experienced a war when I was young, which ended up leading us to Toronto. And then I, just like Amrit, grew up in a fairly diverse and again heavy uh, suburb in Toronto. And yeah, that was my introduction to you know what my version of Canada looked like. And in regards to the environment that I grew up in, I was really lucky to now realize as an adult how special my my childhood was as I was heavily exposed to all types of culture and aspects of culture like music and visual art and dance. My mom is actually a, a Bharatanatyam dancer, so an Indian classical dancer. And and my dad um, is, you know, a recreational singer and always organized classical Indian concerts. And back in the 70s and 80s, Bollywood recording artists and, 
And so I grew up kind of backstage um, as he was the organizer and our family was heavily kind of in the cultural scene. And so there was always music in the house, always shows and concerts. And, and my childhood never involved um, getting, you know, the new pair of Nikes or or the Doc Martens or whatever that everybody, you know, got to experience or was lucky to experience if they could afford it uh, at that age. But my parents would take me, you know, out for shows and movies and music. So one of the first kind of Western pop culture shows that I got to see was Paul Abdul with my parents, which I will never forget. And yeah, so that was kind of the environment uh, we grew up in. And I I really am thankful for, for that because that's definitely shaped how I see the world and what I value in the world is is very experiential and it comes from all aspects of what makes up culture. And so I did the classic thing like Amrit, you know, it's like you are from a South Asian immigrant household. They usually want us to be doctor, lawyer or like a CEO of something. And so because I was not sure, I just felt like the easiest thing to do was like a business degree. But the program that I did was a co-op program and it was a really great school if you you know wanted to be the next CEO and as they placed us in pretty amazing um, positions. So during my university kind of co-op programs, I got to experience working at like the Disney marketing video game division, also working at Fujifilm in, in also the marketing division and got exposure to that world and how that world operates and my kind of personality in that world. And it was very, very clear quite early in the game that my way of, of thinking and, and living was quite contrary to how the companies operate. And as cool as the company may be, as you know, I grew up watching Disney films too, and I thought it was such a cool job. But then when I went in um, and understood how decisions get made, it, like it wasn't very exciting for me. And my last year university, something pivotal happened in which I got to go on an exchange program to Lisbon, Portugal. And I got to meet people and have, you know, still to this day, those are my some of my good friends from all around Europe. And it really sparked uh, something inside of me. I just felt like I really needed to spend some time living in India as an adult and, and have that real experience. And yeah, and so that kind of sparked that. And I came back to Toronto, ended up working at an advertising agency for a couple of years to get a little bit more experience and also just to make you know a little bit of money. And through that, that's kind of when my friendship with Amrit kind of blossomed when she was working at a vintage shop. And we would do these kind of like side gigs where I would photograph, you know, the things that she would make. And it was really like old school and terrible photos when we look at them now. But we'd make these little lookbooks with our friends and like photo shoots and all of that stuff and put on like fashion shows and uh, art shows and all of that. A few years here and then I decided that it was time to move to Bombay honestly like the the courage and confidence that i had then like i wish maybe i had it now at some points because i really didn't know anyone i had one cousin and um, the rest of my family was down south in india and so i just felt like i was ready and so i went there it's like you know it's basically like moving to new york without knowing a person and and i think that was actually 
a really beneficial part of it all because I didn't know anyone. I had to kind of build from scratch and like meet people and build community and just kind of find my way. And so that kind of sparked that curiosity and excitement. It was so much fun um, those first few years in Bombay. And, and Amrit came, she actually dropped me off at the airport in Toronto before I went. And she was like, oh, I'm going to come visit you. And she actually ended up coming some months later and then she ended up staying. So that was the beginning of our, our black and white journey. Wow. I have so many more questions now. Um, I think the thing that really stands out from your story, Mrega, is how your parents must have had to endure quite a lot in regard to having almost these fluid identities in a way, like them coming from two cultures in India, then moving to Kuwait and then into Canada, actually. So I think having the courage to then persevere throughout all of these stages, even going as far as putting on creative, like creative cultural events. That's such a wonderful experience. I think your parents just sound so wonderful and, you know, congratulations to them for really instilling such colorful backgrounds to your youth. And I guess opening your eyes to how to be yourself and enjoy art and music so now we're at this point of you both living in Bombay and what happened next? The What was the key point or that spark where you felt like you actually wanted to create something, to build something? Maybe at the beginning, the idea wasn't set up as a fashion company, but what was the initial inspiration that led you to start No Black, No White in any shape or form that it was at that moment? What started that business journey? There was really no intention of starting our black nor white. It really just kind of started from, you know, why don't we take a trip and let's see how things are made. Prior to going, I had made a couple of smaller collections while out there in Bombay. And, you know, it was basically going into the shops, buying the fabric, making the piece and, you know, uh, creating the collection. But like, there really wasn't any depth to that. It just felt like it was lacking something. You know, you're in India of all places. You know, it's the country of like so many beautiful crafts and textiles. And walking to it, walking into a shop and just buying fabric and making something just didn't feel like like it didn't feel like much. So it was kind of that curiosity of understanding how things are made as well, which led us to our first trip. Yeah, that was it. Like in regards to what sparked the the kind of nor black nor white um, mindset was is really curiosity in process and in culture and understanding who's making things, uh, why these things are being made, what the process looks like, and yeah, like it felt really flat to even think about putting things out there in the world that are are just for the sake of a product design or um, a piece of clothing or like once we were immersed in actually you know like living in a place and operating in different communities and being intertwined in in how everything works then it gives perspective in a very different way and 
And I felt like um, we were on the journey of just kind of honoring that process and, and sharing as much as that of that process as we could um, for all the people that don't get to, you know, experience that and, and get to live in that. And so we went on a trip initially to Rajasthan and we ended up in Kutch in Gujarat in the northern part of India where it is very, very crafts heavy, artist heavy, um, beautiful textiles and and one of our favorite textiles, without us even really knowing too much about it, is a textile that we use called Bandhani. And it's a classic tie-dye form. And that has a huge ho- like house in, in Gujarat. Uh, it's home to a lot of different Bandhani artisans. In Gach Gujarat, we, we ended up at a organization that was focused on preserving indigenous textiles from that region specifically and we ended up at the library there and it's just like a small you know space and they had a beautiful collection and archive of of these textiles and 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 just like the history of them and and the person at the library you know noticed our interest and we spent time there so they said you know you should meet the founder of this i think you know you guys would love to meet each other and so we ended up meeting her and and her name was Judy Freider, and she was a classic like textile nerd from from the states who had moved to India like back in the seventies, and she had been trying to organize the different artisan clusters and groups of people to be able to provide some sort of organizational method for their work to get out into the world, and also for them to be, you know, generating income from it. We got along quite well, and she was also a little bit fascinated by us because we aren't you know, design trained kids and we're not technically fashion kids in that way. So she just, she appreciated, I think, our curiosity and and she introduced us to the Katri family, which is a Bandhani family and they're like generations, you know, long of, of Bandhani artisans. And so we drove out a few hours and we're kind of in the middle of nowhere in, in Gujarat and we ended up um, meeting them and, and getting along. And they also were fascinated, as fascinated by us as we were of them. We ended up staying with their family for a week. And then that was the real, in terms of like tangible experience of experimenting and watching the process of Bandini being made and all the different kind of aspects of that process. And it was really exciting. It was um it was humbling as well to, you know, this is a fabric that we've grown up with. We've seen a lot of it around on the streets and like we had no idea that uh, of the kind of detail and process and honestly the time that it takes to to produce a textile like that. One of the main things with Bandhani is the more knots that you tie, the tighter they are, the smaller they are, the more costly the, the pieces and it, and it is a form of identification and of wealth levels um, because, you know, the more expensive the fabric, the more rich you are. And so we started playing with the ideas of making things much larger and spread out. And that kind of informed how we presented our first Bandhani kind of textile with the Katris. And how did this experiment lead to a solid collection? At that time, Reg and I were staying in a one-bedroom flat in a fishing village in Bombay Um, and I remember the textiles came and we spread them on our floor and kind of started from there and we're like okay like what are the next steps because like she mentioned that like neither one of us really have any background or technical background when it comes to fashion and making clothes 
Um, so the first step was we actually were connected to a master tailor who is still our master G to this day. And we were connected with him through a friend of a friend. And I remember he came in and he had a full-time job at that, that moment. So he would come in the evening with his backpack and he would take one piece of fabric with our one design, fold it up, put it in his bag, leave. And then after a few days would come show up, show us the finished piece. So that was our first step. And then from there, we're like, okay, what do we do next? And then spoke to a couple of friends that work in the space and, you know, did a shoot and created the line sheet, did the lookbook and all these things. Like we didn't know any of these things. Like we kind of had to learn from scratch, like creating a lookbook. We had to learn how to do Photoshop and InDesign. So these all things that we were just learning as we were going and then had some money saved up. We're told, we're told at that time, the only way to get this out is by going to a trade show uh, to get wholesale buyers. So we went to a trade show in Paris and landed up there with our collection. And I think we only had two lookbooks printed at that time. And yeah, we just kind of landed up there and that's where we kind of started our journey and got our first order from you know a Japanese shop and then a couple more orders. And then, yeah, we did the trade show thing for a bit, for a few seasons. And then we quickly realized it just was in our format and took a step back from it. But that first collection was definitely like the start of a journey. And we decided initially that every season we were going to go to a different part of India to explore a different craft. I think about the third season and we just realized that it just was not feasible and sustainable. And we really wanted to build and maintain relationships with the people that we work with. So yeah, there was definitely many, many changes as we were learning and figuring things out and realizing, okay, this is not working for us, or this is not the way we want to go about it. So we were kind of modifying as we were going to kind of, you know, fit, make it fit for us and make it work for us. Mm. And I feel like it's not an easy industry to enter into and to carry on working in, especially if you went through the process of like traveling with your collections to Paris and doing trade shows. That's a lot of hard work. And I'm sure that you had a lot of good days and bad days. So at that point, would you say that you had the intention of making this into a business or a brand? Or was it more playful and you were going where the path was naturally taking you? I definitely feel like it was way more playful in the beginning because it was new for us and we were learning as we were going. Because we started off in Bombay and only about 2015, we decided to shift the business. Well, not the business, the business at that time was us two and our master tailor. And we decided to shift to Delhi to make it more of a business. I think that's when the transition kind of went into like, okay, this is going to become a business now. Initially, we were just learning as we we're going, like, I think it was maybe our third or fourth trade show. And we realized sitting there like, this is just not our vibe. At that time, you know, handmade textiles wasn't necessarily the cool thing the way it is right now. We weren't really being approached as much. It just wasn't our format, we realized quickly also like just the way things were being priced, you know, once it goes from a wholesale into, you know, a retail MRP, I was like, we were like, okay, wait, it's becoming a space where like, we cannot even afford our own stuff at this point. So there was just a lot of kind of asking questions and, you know, changing as we went to kind of fit our journey. And you've made an interesting point about standing back and realizing that 
if you work with the wholesale model, you may end up not being able to afford the things that you make. Of course, there is no right or wrong with designers wanting to create, you know, exquisite, beautiful things and distribute them in that model to be of a very luxury price point. It's a personal or a, maybe a moral question of who do you feel the quote unquote product should be worn by or accessible to in the very end? That was exactly it. It's that quite answering the question of who and what are we doing this for? What is the purpose of this? Like, because we didn't start this off as a, you know, a fashion project in that sense. Like we weren't set out to make a clothing line or a fashion line. And this was supposed to be, you know, an explorative creative space for us to, to have fun and to kind of a way for us to understand a part of our culture and I, our identity. So that question was a big question um, throughout the entire process and still is to this day. And it actually makes things more confusing because I do feel like it's more clear and, and easy to make decisions when you're like, okay, this is, this is a business. This is a fashion line. You know, this is what we are accepting and these are the things that we're not. And with ours, because there's a lot of, um, intention and purpose from just from our personal um, way of living and being that is integrated into how we operate and build out this what we called initially a project which is now a business that big question definitely is you know what is the purpose of this is something that is recurring and is a very root place of how we make all types of decisions and the wholesale world that we we tried to explore and spent so much time and, and money that we didn't have to see if something like that would work for our business was actually quite disheartening um, and really was, was not a very accessible or inspiring energy to be around. The, the fashion kind of buyers and and the way that whole infrastructure is set up isn't wasn't we don't know now as we're not in that space anymore. But back then it was not uh, welcoming to small business owners, women of color, South Asians, um, textiles that have patterns and colors and and um, intricacy and that take time to make. Those are all things that were basically going against the format of of a lot, majority of the brands that were being presented and also what the buyers were looking for. So it was very clear that we weren't really welcomed in a space like that. And that actually was um, a driving force of making the decision of of doing things the way we want to do it, how we want to do it, and and you know just continuously following our gut and intuition and in, in the energy that we want to be surrounded by and this being work for ourselves and our community and how that's going to roll out and and it actually has worked really well for us in that way because our community of people has have been such supporters um from day one they they literally you know supported us in every way that they possibly could and they still do to this day and we definitely you know come from that grassroots kind of energy and and that's that's how we built slow and steadily, I guess. And there were way more bad days than there were good in regards to thinking about it as this formal thing and this this thing that we were going to try to make a living out of. And 
And now, you know, there are obviously still difficult days, but it feels great to have made clear decisions uh, of what we was acceptable to our ethics and morals back then that have rooted a lot of the decision making that carries our values out now. And I think there's also something to be said for your timing. It was between 2010, 2014, when you tried to play around with this model. And you really have luck on your side, I think, in terms of just timing. Because when I cast my mind back to that particular period, I feel like that was a tipping point of wholesale and gatekeeping. There's still a lot of gatekeeping for sure. And how you've explained buyers and journalists, there's definitely a lot of filtering done through a very small handful of people in the industry. But I think you came just at the right moment when it went from wholesale and department stores ruling everything to suddenly this direct-to-consumer approach rising and brands being able to have their own e-commerce store and using new tools like Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, these resources which became cooler to check out than going to a multi-brand store in a capital city. It feels like you were a step ahead without actually knowing it, building a direct relationship with your customers and the people around your brand is actually what's going to matter in the long run. That hard work and staying true to who you are really paid off. 100%. And looking at No Black, No White now, how does it look in terms of its structure and maybe the departments within the brand and the positions? Initially, when we moved in 2015, like Mrega mentioned, it was me, myself, Mrega, and Master G that jumped on that flight and showed up in Delhi, not knowing where to go and where to set up. But we, you know, slowly figured that out. Up until the pandemic, we were about just under 15 people. Since the pandemic, it's actually increased to about, yeah, 24, 25 people. That being said, during those initial years in Delhi, pre-pandemic, was really when we decided to focus on our direct-to-consumer and our online business. And we were a really small team, mostly production. Um, we still are mostly production, but at that time, there was a few tailors, a master G, myself, Mrega, a production manager, and uh, you know a couple of uh, junior designers and graphic designers that were helping us out. Now, I would say about 60% of our team, 60-70% of our team is production. We do have a production manager. We have two master uh, tailors now who do all the patterns and cutting. And we have about five, six tailors and then a few people in finishing. And then the rest of our team is made up of, we have accounts, we have a visual um, team, we have a design team, we have one embroiderer in-house, which has been amazing. And then we have a couple people that work solely on the e-commerce and customer service aspect of our business. When the pandemic happened, there were a lot of peers that had to unfortunately, you know, shut up, you know, shut down shop and either, you know, if they were from outside of India, they had to leave or just had to kind of take a break and like, you know, pause on things. And there were a couple of friends who unfortunately had to let a few team members go. So we, I don't know how we did it at that time, but we kind of opened our doors because we thought it would just be for a few months and our friends would come back and open up. But that wasn't the case. And now we have, our team is definitely, our family has grown. 
but we have a pretty solid, amazing team. Um, I think we operate really well. We operate with a lot of love and we operate with a lot of integrity. And, you know, it's not just Mraga and I who have founded the business. Everybody works as it's their own. So I think that's definitely how um, we're able to constantly move and evolve because our, fam- our family and our team is super solid um, out in Delhi. So this is the Delhi team that we have um, in our Delhi studio. So the, yeah, there's about 24, 25 of us. One of the departments you mentioned is graphic design. And I wanted to find out more because your visual content and your website always stand out for being just so lively and so active. So what would you say is your approach to visualizing and storytelling of No Black, No White? What is that kind of filter and the message that you want to get across? Is that message permanent, would you say, or does it also change and fluctuate? Definitely, we want to keep things fun and light as much as possible and to show, you know, beauty from our eyes. And we're definitely more of a maximalist um, kind of take on everything. So the more, the better for us, obviously curated with our aesthetic. But it's funny because people always ask, you know, where do you get like, where does this aesthetic come from? And it truly is like a, a, a combination of Amrit and I and how we see things and how we put things together. We're, we're quite hands-on in that way. Textiles can be boring to a lot of people and processes can honestly be so boring in the way that they are communicated. And, and I think one of the strengths for us is to make things that are boring and often looked as mundane to have them just be more fun and that's like in combination with music and and how we present things so people actually want to learn and understand a little bit more after you know coming onto our site onto our page or even purchasing a piece it's like why is this a piece of art versus you know a dress that you're going to buy for five dollars and toss out without having any sort of emotional understanding of all the people that it takes that's involved in making the piece so from a visual standpoint, communicating all of that is highly important. And in regards to the faces that we work with and the people that we work with, it really started off for many, many years with just people in our community, our friends, anyone that would be happy to, to you know, model for us and showing diversity amongst our own community. It really starts from there. And so being very intentional of the different faces and people that we like to shoot. And, um, you know, now it's very popular to be diverse and to show representation and la-di-da. But I can confidently say that that was the root of how we started many years ago from the very beginning is just representing people from around the world and people within our community, the faces that we never used to get to see. In, in visual spaces. Like Mrega said, it it really is kind of like what we're just feeling and what we're kind of vibing out with. It's very raw. There isn't really any set process or practice to it. We don't have that technical aspect of knowing that it should be like this or should be like that. The fact that it comes from a raw place, I think is also the beauty of it. And that's why you see such a mashup of things within it. 
but yeah, it's definitely a natural process. We just have a lot of fun. We love making visuals. We make all kinds of visuals. Even our studio is a visual journey. When you come in, you're like, whoa. So yeah, it's just a, a fun format of, for us to share our work and share it beyond just the clothes in, on models. A point which you made earlier, Mrega, and that really struck a chord with me about the visualization of textiles and clothes manufacturing process being boring in a way, that's a topic that I think deserves like a whole separate episode. So can we just talk about how boring it is now? The countless brands visualizing their ethical credentials with images of artisans sewing or spinning yarn and smiling, this kind of static angle, which I think we're desensitized to and which to me, fails completely to capture the beauty and the complexity of the fashion making process. And in no way am I saying that it's easy. It's really a huge challenge, but I definitely feel like it's time to flex our creative muscle in regard to storytelling of the process, not just the final product or a model or an influencer where all of the marketing budget gets invested in. I find it so ironic because if anyone has ever seen how a handmade fabric is made, dyed or maybe embroidered, it is honestly one of the most beautiful things. I think it's one of the most inspiring, beautiful things out there, but it's being funneled into a couple of images which tend to feel like, I don't know, to me like an aftermath of almost charity work. There tends to be an angle of sympathy or maybe like even looking down on the maker, which really upsets me. While on the other hand, so much strategy and preparation and investment goes into fabricating what I think, uh, what I think are sometimes artificial stories through marketing campaigns and paid partnerships with influencers who may not even affiliate with the brand in real life. So personally, I can't wait to see how the storytelling of craftsmanship will progress in the near future, because there's just so much exciting work to be done. And really well done to you both just for pushing the standards forward. And you actually brought us smoothly onto a really brilliant question from our editor and studio assistant, Ria, who was curious to hear about your thoughts on building a team in a way that people actually want to stay for a little bit longer than the kind of standard, industry standard of a couple of years. So I'm sure you must have learned so much on a personal level from employing and guiding, coordinating and just managing people. Could you reflect on what you believe makes for a good working environment? We're definitely still learning. I personally think that communication is everything and the boundaries in kind of communication. So where Amrit and I kind of had to have big learning lessons was creating some sort of boundary between being uh, generous in, in terms of friendship versus this is still a place of work. And so the environment for that we've cultivated is not, you know, an 
a purposeful environment of being like, okay, this is the kind of company that we want to be. But it really comes down to, again, the blurriness of, of our personalities and how we operate and move in this world. It also extending out into how we want to work in this world and how we want to build partnerships or build a team and create an energy in the studio and so it really comes always back down to like what kind of energy are we putting out there and what do we want to receive and so that can get very very tricky when there is production timelines there is finances involved there is other people clients involved expectations contracts all of that and so um, we've, you know, had big hard lessons and then we've had like kind of the slow and steady kind of uh, ongoing lessons. And I think clear communication, you know, setting some sort of generous but firm boundaries in, in what we expect has been kind of the core of building a solid team. And and again, we're going to come back to it, but it, it is having fun as well. Mm -hmm. Like, and that blurriness of fun versus getting things done. I think, you know, we could maybe be further ahead in terms of if a, an investor is looking at us, they'd be like, you know, you should have more sales, you should have all of, of these things. And it's been these conversations. But at the end of the day, like, it's a very fine balance of output of being a fun place to work and having a certain number of pieces being able to be sold and made versus like pumping out all of this stuff and people being miserable and not enjoying their you know daily work and also like coming to a point where they would just leave and unfortunately fashion has a terrible reputation for that and from what we've seen we understand where that reputation comes from with unhappy people and really harsh work environments and pretentious energies and that is really the opposite of what we ever want to be participating in let alone leading and creating so that is um, a fundamental part of how we work is communication and, and honesty in that way and trusting people holding integrity and what you say is what you do and if you can't do it you need to kind of just communicate that in a timely way and at the end of the day like are you having fun like do you enjoy what you're doing are you passionate about it are you into it like what are you trying what is your purpose right so there's a lot of different aspects and in, in in how we um build the team but really also like when we're working with different age groups and ranges of skills and you know with limited budgets and stuff like you can feel when somebody really wants something or they really are open in their heart and mind to trying and you know learning and not everyone comes you know with equal skill sets or capacities or ways of communication but are they willing and open and do they have that starting point and we can kind of gauge that from the beginning we've made mistakes definitely along the way but i think our intuition in that regard is getting stronger and we're also just getting more firm of you know what we won't tolerate and accept in terms of behavior or attitude uh when working with us so that comes from all aspects from clients from uh, vendors from artisans from producers from everything like that that's really important that the people that we work with come with a certain energy and that are pleasant you know that's just a really wonderful way of summarizing it it's a really complex thing to explain 
But I think you've just hit the nail on the head there. And last question before I let you go, as you've been just really accommodating with your time. One of our favorite topics on the podcast is direct to consumer communities. And we'd love to learn a little bit more about your approach as it feels like no black, no white, just does it so well and so authentically. Do you mind sharing with our listeners which regions your customers come from and where the brand resonates with the most? From uh, our D2C, we're quite blessed in the sense that we actually have grown our community worldwide. Um, We do get orders from all over the place. Sometimes I'm like, whoa, I can't believe we got it from there. But I would say our prime Mary markets are definitely the United States, Canada, and the UK, followed by Australia. Um, but we definitely get orders and from around the world. Um, the one thing about our D2C, and I feel like why customers really support us and they they come back and they you know they'll come back and purchase again with us is we really hold value to our our customer service in the sense of like we do a lot of customization. So like if you know that. something may not fit we're open to kind of giving you that um, tailoring experience of making sure that the money that you're putting down which you probably saved up for this one piece it's you know it's worth it and it fits you really well so like for us our customer relationship building as well like we've had customers that have been with us since day one so we've really gotten to know a lot of them over the years as well and it's the one thing that we really try to spend time on and making sure that, you know, it's a great experience for them. And it's not just like any other online transaction. Our community is just an extension of, of the people that, you know, we surround ourselves by in um, Toronto and in India and wherever um, we are in the world. And uh, predominantly like they, they are built, it is built of women of color, um, people just like us and, people that are inquisitive and curious to digging a bit deeper um, on all aspects of life and supporting kind of smaller independent organizations, companies, um, artists, all of that. And so that does make up a huge part of our community, BIPOC and queer community, uh, mostly creatives. The core of it um, I think definitely stems from creatives and uh, people of color. And what an exciting place to be in, right? Having your first official order from Japan to now having such far reach with this beautiful, rich world of personalities. Well, unfortunately, we have to wrap this up. And thank you so much for staying with us way over the proposed time and for your transparency and also just really speaking from the heart. So thank you both. Thank you for listening to this episode of Advanced Copy. We believe in sharing practical information to help create a healthy world of independent fashion. Subscribe and follow us on Instagram to find more pragmatic stories of how to get there. See you next time.